Hey, Unchained listeners. As you know, it's hard keeping up with the fast-paced world of crypto, so we've got just the thing for you. Subscribe to our free Unchained daily newsletter at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. You'll get the latest crypto news and original articles from our reporters, as well as summaries of other happenings and bullet points, plus our meme of the day, all curated and written by our amazing team. It's still your no-hype resource for all things crypto, just in newsletter form. Sign up at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Again, the URL is unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Unchained, your no-hype resource for all things crypto. I'm your host, Laura Shin, a journalist with over two decades of experience. I started covering crypto over six years ago, and as a senior editor at Forbes, was the first mainstream media reporter to cover cryptocurrency full-time. This is the July 27th, 2021 episode of Unchained. My book, The Cryptopians, Idealism, Greed, Lies, and the Making of the First Big Cryptocurrency Craze, is available for pre-order on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or any of your favorite bookstores. Go to bit.ly slash cryptopians. That's B-I-T dot L-Y slash C-R-Y-P-T-O-P-I-A-N-S and pre-order today. Tezos is smart money that's redefining what it means to hold and exchange value in a digitally connected world. Discover how people are reimagining the world around you on Tezos. Conjure brings any asset you want onto Ethereum by allowing for users to create synthetic assets which track other markets. With zero interest loans and unlimited assets, it's helping DeFi to consume TradFi. That's C-O-N-J-U-R-E dot finance. Check it out. The Crypto.com app lets you buy, earn, and spend crypto all in one place. Earn up to 8.5% interest on your Bitcoin and 14% interest on your stablecoins. Paid weekly. Download the Crypto.com app and get $25 with the code Laura. The link is in the description. Today's guest is Eric Voorhees, founder and CEO of Shapeshift, which, disclosure, is a past sponsor of my shows. Welcome, Eric. Hey, how's it going? Great. Nice to have you. Yeah, very glad to be here. Shapeshift recently announced that it's becoming decentralized, and I believe it's the first crypto company to make that transition. What did Shapeshift used to look like, and what will it look like going forward? Yeah, so we are a normal today centralized company. We have 66 employees. We have an office. Um, we have VC investors. And we've been around since 2014, so about seven years. And um, we have decided that we are going to start dismantling the entire corporate structure and open sourcing all of our code and moving to a decentralized DAO type uh, organizational format instead of a centralized corporate organizational format. So there are certainly a number of decentralized projects within crypto. So we're certainly not the first of that. But I think we are the first established company that has just decided to no longer be an established company and completely decentralize itself to whatever degree we can. And why did you decide to make this transition? A few reasons. Um, you know, one is just that the, the strategic landscape of cryptocurrency, in my opinion, is clearly moving toward decentralized applications uh, and will move away from centralized ones. The reason for this is various frictions that centralized entities have to deal with that decentralized ones don't. Um, there's sort of an ideological reason to do this, which is just that, you know, Bitcoin's ethos is one of decentralization, immutability, open, openness, borderlessness, 
uh, open source at, at a base layer. And to the degree that we can be in alignment with that, um, I think that is better for our customers, better for the brand, and ultimately better for the entire cryptocurrency industry. You know, the, the more companies that are in line with that ethos, the better. And so Shapeshift, as one of the oldest companies in the space, and also you as an entrepreneur and uh, one of the long, longest serving entrepreneurs in the space, both of you have been through a lot when it comes to the different cycles in the industry and also when it comes to regulation, banking, and all these other issues. So what does the transition signify for you? For me, it signifies a development in cryptocurrency in which it's actually possible to decentralize an organization. Um, you know, this was not something I understood or thought possible even a year ago. And the tools that are built by various decentralized projects have gotten very advanced and they're developing rapidly. Um, years ago, we had to beg banks for bank accounts and we were always, you know, on the precipice of having one bank account closed and having to open another one. And it was, that's always a, a stressful thing. And we were beholden to that system. And we're at the point now where we don't need banks at all. Like not at all. If we need stability, we hold stable coins. If we don't need stability, we hold Bitcoin and Ethereum. Uh, and that's just a very cool development to see that actually us as an organization can, can build ourselves on top of the uh, tools that others in this industry have been building. All right. So let's backtrack a second. Um, so early on, or, or before you started making this transition, if a user went to Shapeshift, what would happen? And they wanted to make a transaction. Yeah, in our first form, you know, starting in 2014, someone would arrive at our website and they would say, I have some Bitcoin, I want some Litecoin. Uh, we would show them a Bitcoin address. They send their Bitcoin to that address. We, we as Shapeshift receive that coin. And upon receipt of it, we send them their Litecoin from our own wallet. So it was a quick and easy way to convert one digital asset into another without custody. And back then, of course, there was no KYC. There was no user accounts. It was just, it was like a, like a vending machine, really. Uh, and people, people loved that. It was, it was simple. It was clean. It did exactly what the user wanted in the way that the user wanted it. So that was our first incarnation. By 2018, we had gotten pretty large. We were over 100 employees. And, you know, that was at the tail of the, the 2017 boom. And we had invested a lot of time and money into the regulatory world. And we came to the dismal conclusion that we may be treated as a financial institution and as such would have to start imposing all sorts of financial regulatory obligations on our users and on ourselves. This was um, extremely costly to implement, but more importantly, violated all of the ethical principles that we held, that our users held. Uh, our users hated it. We hated it. But we've we felt coerced into that because regulators are going to regulate and we did not see a way out at that time. So, um, so we bit the bullet. We implemented KYC, uh, know your customer, basically a lot of the financial surveillance apparatus that all financial institutions have. Um, and that was a couple years of, of struggle for sure. More recently, in 2020, in the fall, we decided we would start integrating decentralized exchanges. 
which are immutable protocols that aren't run by any company. They're just open source software that live, you know, in the Ethereum cloud or, or on blockchains themselves. And we would rip out our entire trading system, which had been our lifeblood from the beginning and instead let our users trade directly with these decentralized protocols. And so we got out of the business of regulated activity. By getting out of the business of regulated activity, the regulations do not apply to us because we're not providing that service any longer. And um, that was the start of our move into an entirely decentralized model, which we, which we just announced recently. So um, now, I mean, now that you've already made a few of these steps, what are some of the other things that need to happen over the next few months, I guess, to start the process? So much stuff. Yeah. So, I mean, we are certainly not decentralized today. We are starting a process of decentralizing. Part of that is open sourcing our code. And we have like, you know, seven years of software at all, all levels and layers. So that in and of itself is a huge um, project. We have to unwind the corporate entity, all of our contracts, all of our banking relationships. Um, we have to do this in a way, you know, with shareholder approval and board approval and through all the, the corporate steps that a normal company has to deal with. Um, and we have to build and cultivate a community of our users now that hold Fox tokens and bring them into the governance process of where Shapeshift goes, because we will no longer be governed by essentially a foundation of shareholders, we will be governed by a foundation of Fox token holders. And that's a different paradigm. And we have to cultivate that community and build it up. And so earlier when you talked about how Shapeshift started and it was kind of like a vending machine, what is the user experience like now? And then what will it eventually look like? Yeah, a lot of people still think of us as an exchange. But at this point, that's just a, a complete misnomer. People can use us to exchange, but we are not an exchange. So Shapeshift is best described today as a multi-chain self-custody crypto platform. So that means we support lots of different chains, you know, like we're not Ethereum only or Bitcoin only or anything like that. Um, we are self-custody. So users always maintain control of their keys. You can hook up various wallets to the Shapeshift platform, like a Keep Key or Ledger or Trezor on the hardware side or Portis or our mobile app. Uh, on the software side, eventually we will add MetaMask as well and other leading ones. So you you sort of bring your own wallet to our interface. And in that interface, you can interact with your digital assets. You can send and receive. You can track your portfolio balance. You can do trades from one asset to another. And um, that's kind of the, the starting point for building a crypto platform that the whole world can use. And now we open source that. And so once it's a DAO... Um, well, I guess you may not know what the user experience will be like at that point. But if you're a Fox yeah. token holder, then how will how will uh, the Shapeshift experience be for you? Yeah, so you certainly don't need to hold the Fox token in order to use anything about Shapeshift. Um, you don't get any worse pricing or rates. Shapeshift doesn't add any fees to trading. So it's just like if you went directly to Uniswap or something like that. But if you hold the Fox tokens you have pro rata ability to govern the changes that are made to the platform going forward. So today that's mostly a superficial benefit. Over time, it will become the complete and holistic way that all major decisions get made the entire project. So um, that's, that's the transition that we're going through. Uh, there are some other utilities of the token. For example, you get rebates on your gas fees if you hold the token and, and things like that. But primarily it is about 
moving the ability to govern the organization from a shareholder base to a open community that is global around the, the token. And so a lot of projects went from centralized to decentralized via a foundation. And it looks to me like Shapeshift will start that way. Um, you're kind of transitioning from Shapeshift the company to Shapeshift the foundation, or, or correct me if any of that was incorrect. And so how will that part look? Yeah. So our end goal is not to have a foundation, but we are establishing a foundation that will exist for somewhere between one and five years. And its sole purpose is to help facilitate the decentralization. Uh, ideally, it winds itself down sooner rather than later because it's not needed. There are parts of our operations and our projects that uh, we don't know how to decentralize today. Those parts need to move to the foundation for now. And as and when we can figure out how to decentralize them, we will. So a lot of projects have a foundation that's kind of meant to be perpetual. Ours is meant to be temporary. Ideally, it becomes uh, fairly redundant. And so in the to start, you airdropped these Fox tokens to users across a number of different protocols, but obviously to um, Shapeshift users historically. How did you decide upon that allocation? And correct me if any of these figures are incorrect, but as far as I can tell, 34% was allocated to the Shapeshift community, 32% to Shapeshift staff, 24% to the Shapeshift DAO treasury, 7.5% to the foundation. And I believe you yourself have 5% of all Fox tokens. So yes, how, as like, part of that staff bucket. Um, yeah, I mean, this was an interesting part of our design over the last few months is like, you know, we had 99% of all the tokens and we've never sold these things. There's a limited supply. So how do we allocate these tokens in the in the best way to cultivate a decentralized community and make this successful long-term? Uh, so one decision was, you know, a lot of these tokens have to get out in, into the hands of the community. So we took a third of all of them and airdropped it to over 1.1 million recipients. Uh, over 800,000 uh, shape, past Shapeshift customers and a bunch of people from different DeFi projects like Uniswap token holders and ThorChain users and various others. And the, the value of that airdrop ranged from, you know, one or $200 up to a few thousand dollars. So it was the largest airdrop in history in terms of the number of recipients. And that was a great way to just kind of bring everyone in and say, like, here you go. Thank you for working with us in the past, or thank you for being part of an inspirational community that has helped guide us toward this decentralized path. Um, we put about a quarter of all the tokens into the DAO itself. So this is a fund that is governed by the community. So what that means is that over half of all the tokens are essentially in the hands of the community, either airdrop directly or in the hands of the, the DAO treasury, which the community of token holders can govern. Um, and then of course, we have employees that have been with us for years and investors that have been with us for years. No part of this decentralized process can, can screw any group, right? So our shareholders have to be made better off, our employees have to be made better off, and the customers. So the tokens are the way to do that, right? Give tokens out to everyone, and everyone has a stake in the future of the project. Everyone has governance over the project. But unlike equity and unlike shares, these tokens are immediately liquid. And people can do whatever they want with them. Um, one caveat is that all insiders, all employees and shareholders, all of their tokens are locked 
for three years. So they unlock linearly over that three-year period. And uh, that aligns them with the long-term interests of Shapeshift. And do you have a sense of the employees and shareholders, whether or not they plan to participate in the DAO or whether they're going to move on to other things? Yeah, it'll be a range. So certainly some of our employees are just going to want a new like W-2 salary job somewhere and they will move on to other projects and, and that's fine. Many of our employees are really excited about this model and they will either part-time or full-time still contribute to what Shapeshift is. Um, and you know, depending on where the token price sits, uh, some of their grants are worth far more than what they ever received in salary. So that's a that's a very cool thing. And then they have complete freedom to decide their own schedule, their own lifestyle. You know, there's not a nine to five corporate job. They can work on it an hour a week or 50 hours a week, whatever they want. Um, And, you know, some of our investors are total, totally not familiar with crypto generally, right? So they have no idea that what this even is. (laughs) Others think this is the coolest thing ever. And they're, you know, you know, um, so glad to be part of it. And uh, it's, it's the full gamut. And what do you plan to do? Yeah, so I will no longer be CEO of Shapeshift um, probably by the end of this year. And I would like to take a little bit of a break, you know, like detach from some screens for a while. But ultimately, my interest in Shapeshift is heightened as it can be a decentralized project. I mean, to me, that is far more exciting than a centralized company. So um, I plan to just be one influential member among many in the community. And, you know, I'll throw my ideas out and I'll try to help guide it and I will vote with my tokens and all that. Um, so I will certainly have a lot of influence, but I will no longer control the project as CEO. Um, and I'm, I'm okay with that. I love seeing the community take up pieces of this. And we have all sorts of great people that have been employees at Shapeshift that are going to be leading various areas. So I'm, I'm looking forward to that. And it's going to be a grand experiment. And so at at what point do you think this will be open source? And at that point, do you think that some of the engineers who've worked on Shapeshift will keep wanting to work on it as an open source project? Yeah, we're going to open source things incrementally. So kind of repo by repo. Um, I think we looked and we have something like 340 different code repos at Shapeshift. A lot of it isn't used anymore. Some of it is very mission critical. We have to do security reviews of the things that we open source. So as we can review things and feel comfortable that they are ready to open source, you know, well commented and documented, those things will be released and opened uh, iteratively. Um, at the same time, we expect that the community will start building new repos and new things uh, into Shapeshift and around Shapeshift. So that we can't control or predict where that will all go. But as an open source project, it means that everyone in the crypto community that also has their own project can integrate what they're doing into the Shapeshift platform. And that's really going to like give us a, a, much, a much better product development path where we are not the limiting factor in what gets built into Shapeshift. So looking forward to that. And so essentially, um, that's what you're talking about there is like people from other projects that are integrating with Shapeshift. Are there any efforts that you're making to attract new developers to work on the open source project? Or or do you feel like the Fox tokens will do that naturally? Or how does yeah, that so part the, work? Certainly the tokens that were granted out to all of our employees are, I would say, a medium a medium term incentive for those people to continue working on the project, even though they have no mandate to, because they have a 
you know, locked up vested interest in the success of this thing. Um, but Shapeshift is not a charity and does not work, expect people to just work kind of philanthropically on it. So anyone who is interested in working on Shapeshift as an open source project can propose to the DAO or to the foundation, either one, for a grant to do work, right? So this could be some tiny feature development or fixing a bug. It could be someone who creates an entire team of 20 engineers and says, hey, I want to go work on this area of the platform for the next year. Give me this big grant and we'll do it. And those those decisions ultimately come down to the governance of the Fox token holders. And um, so we'll see how all that evolves. But yeah, the, the, the DAO has a large treasury. You know, it's over $200 million of value at this point. And so um, it can easily support a great deal of, of development over the coming years. And have you guys already set up a governance system? Like, is there a process that you're using yeah. for deciding these things? Yeah, actually, we had our first governance vote last night, which was kind of uh, <laughs> kind of fun. Um, yeah, there's a bunch of really cool tools. Uh, Snapshot, Boardroom are two of the projects that we use. And these things essentially look at token balances and use that to allow people to make decisions and vote on things. And what's very cool is that you can hook these things up to uh, things like the the Gnosis safe. You know, so the Gnosis safe can be like a multi-sig contract that holds all the Fox tokens in it. And the outcome of a vote will procedurally uh, cause funds to move to a certain specified address. So you get like an, a nearly immutable system in which decisions can actually move economic value and you don't need to trust anyone. Um, so we're certainly not at that point yet, but that's the direction we're going and all those tools are, are ready to go. So yeah, a lot of it is set up and we now have to just build that muscle of using these tools instead of using our you know, internal Slack channel and, and corporate board governance. And so the foundation has an allocation to start, but is the foundation, does it exist yet? And if so, um, you know, how does it plan to participate in the governance? Yeah, so it doesn't exist yet. It will likely exist within two months. And um, it has a relatively small amount of tokens. Um, I think seven, 75 million tokens to the foundation. So 7.5% of all of them. So, um, you know, it will be an influential participant, but it will not be, it will not be able to control the outcome of the, of the decision-making. It's, um, it's tokens are mostly to, to put out bounties on work that it as a centralized entity thinks are important. And so how are you going to staff the foundation? Are you going to have a role there? I won't. None of the current executives of Shapeshift will have a role at that foundation. So that's we, when we say decentralizing, it's not like a superficial thing where we're just like the same team, but now we're a foundation. We are actually removing the whole power and governance structure that currently exists out of the question over time, iteratively. The foundation will be small. It will likely have somewhere between three and five full-time employees. And um, these will be people that oversee the open source development and help cultivate that community help guide the project and the product, but they won't be able to control it. Um, and ultimately will hold on to things like IP or other centralized operational systems that we haven't figured out how to decentralize yet. Oh, and add, so like you literally don't know how you'll decentralize that. Cause I, I was going to ask about that. How does that ha yeah. happen? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, some questions we just don't have answers to it's right. So like a simple example, the shapeshift.com domain name. 
right? Like today that's held by the Shapeshift company in a registrar's account held by the company. Company is going away, right? So what happens to that account? What happens to that domain? There are things like that, which um, there are ways to solve that, right? There are, there are different, you know, like unstoppable domains and things that are decentralized. We haven't looked into how to use those effectively yet. So that's, that's a project that we will deal with in the future. Um, we believe those things can be decentralized, but you know we can't do everything at once. So that domain will be transferred to the foundation and it will hold it for some period of time. Things like that. Interesting. And I noticed, so one of the businesses under the Shapeshift brand is KeepKey, which is your hardware mm-hmm. wallet. And the current plan is for it to become an open source hardware project, which I don't know, uh, is that like a typical thing? Is the, Is it common for something... That's like a kind of a physical product that is, you know, sold to the market uh, to be open source. And if so, how do you imagine that will um, kind of function as a business? Yeah. So to be clear, we haven't fully decided what to do with KeepKey yet. Um, One of the paths is to turn it into an open source hardware wallet. The the firmware is already open source. So no one should ever trust a hardware wallet where the, the firmware itself was not open source but the entire platform becoming open source, all software, all code, the entire hardware design, everything. Um, that is one option that we are seriously considering. That would be very cool because there isn't any such thing in the world today. <laughs> and, um, you know, that would be, that would be great. Uh, KeepKey is absolutely the best way to interact with the Shapeshift platform. You get all the advantages of cold storage and just the, the software interaction between those two things is, is excellent. So even though we support Trezor and Ledger, the, the UX is definitely best with the KeepKey. So we will figure out the right place for KeepKey to go. Another option would be that uh, a company acquires it from us and runs it in tandem with the foundation or with some kind of partnership there. Um, TBD, but we don't, we don't have to figure that out just yet. Okay, yeah, because my thinking when I saw that was that I thought it would probably work best as a, a managed by a centralized company. I mean, not that I'm, an expert yeah. on these things, but yeah, well, these are all the questions we're exploring. I mean, you know, um, if you op- if we open sourced KeepKey, what it would mean is that anyone would have the schematics and plans to build the device or to manufacture the device. So anyone could go build more of them because they would know how to do it, and they could sell those. They could even white label them and put them under their own brand if they wanted. But you certainly get a little bit of risk in that because then how do you trust KeepKey, right? You, you don't know quite, quite which manufacturer you're getting it from. And there are some issues there. Those are solvable with cryptographic signatures and, and various things, but it is a challenge that we have to be careful about. All right. So we'll see what happens with that. Okay. So in a moment, we're going to talk a little bit more about the Fox token, but first a quick word from the sponsors who make this show possible. Tezos lets you easily exchange smart money throughout our digital world. A self-upgradable blockchain with a proven track record, Tezos seamlessly adopts tomorrow's innovations without network disruptions today. Because of this adaptability, engineers, conservationists, entrepreneurs, collectors, game developers, and artists from around the world are building, creating, and using Tezos every day. Discover how people are reimagining the world around you on Tezos. With over 10 million users, Crypto.com is the easiest place to buy and sell over 90 cryptocurrencies. Download the Crypto.com app now and get $25 with the code LAURA. 
If you're a hodler, Crypto.com Earn pays industry-leading interest rates on over 30 coins, including Bitcoin, at up to 8.5% interest and up to 14% interest on your stablecoins. When it's time to spend your crypto, nothing beats the Crypto.com Visa card, which pays you up to 8% back instantly and gives you 100% rebate for your Netflix, Spotify, and Amazon Prime subscriptions. There is no annual or monthly fees to worry about. Download the Crypto.com app and get $25 when using the code LAURA, L-A-U-R-A. The link is in the description. Do you want to trade gold, currencies, or even bananas on Ethereum? Contra opens access to the global financial market for Ethereum by allowing for permissionless, user-created synthetic assets. Contra allows you to create, borrow, and trade synthetic assets which track the value for any conceivable asset, real or abstract, using any price feed you want. Asset creators are able to earn fees on every mint and scale revenue with direct use for their assets. Synths are minted by providing Ether to collateralize the asset as 0% interest loans. Contra is helping to bring TradFi to DeFi and turn Ethereum into the real global financial settlement layer. Trade synths for USD, gold, BTC, or make your own. So why not check out C-O-N-J-U-R-E dot finance and see what's possible. Back to my conversation with Eric Voorhees. So um, earlier we talked about how you decided upon the allocations for the Fox token. How did you decide how to distribute it and where to. And I believe there's going to be some yield farming um, schemes as well. So yeah, how did you figure all that out? Yeah, so for the insiders, for shareholders and employees, their tokens have to be locked for a period of time. We wanted that to happen so they didn't just get a big pile on day one. Now, how how do you do that? How do you distribute over three years when the corporate entity will be gone in six months? That's actually an easy answer today. There's a, a thing called Sableer, which is a smart contract, and you pour a bunch of tokens into it. You tell it a destination address, and it's just every Ethereum block unlocks a tiny fraction of those tokens that can be claimed by the address owner. So those contracts are all set up. So all the employees and shareholders can go like see how much is available to them that day, and they can let them sit there for the next three years. They could claim it every, every week if they wished, um, and that will happen... Now, no matter what, like there's no way to turn that off at this point. So when Shapeshift, the entity goes away, those contracts continue spitting out those tokens to those people over the next three years. Um, to the community, we didn't want any lockup provisions. So we just did an airdrop. There are a lot of airdrop contracts out there. You know, the cool stuff about the cool thing about open source software is you can just copy it and use it, right? So we used uh, well formed airdrop contracts that had been security audited and, and vetted, and we just changed some parameters and used those. And over a million addresses are eligible to receive those tokens. At the end of 90 days, anything that is unclaimed from the airdrop will get dumped into the DAO treasury. And that will probably be a large portion of those, of those tokens. Um, so I would guess that the DAO treasury will end up with around half of all the tokens in existence. And there's no inflation in the FOX token. So that really uh, imbues it with like kind of like an endowment of assets that, you know, especially if they appreciate, can become a never-ending pool of capital. So at the moment, roughly, um, what is that? Just maybe a little over half of them have been claimed. Is that what you're saying? No, I'm saying that I would expect by the end of the 90 days, there will probably be a couple hundred million that aren't claimed. Okay. And those will go into the Dow Treasury. Yeah. Okay. We 
we'll see the, the curve of people claiming it has been pretty steady and we'll see kind of how it goes as we get to the end of the 90 days. Um, but it's, it's just so many addresses, you know, like 1.1 million different addresses over the past six, seven years. So a lot of people have addresses that they don't realize are eligible. And so we need to like keep getting that word out and trying to help people find it. And what was your thinking about, you know, how you chose the different populations? Like, I mean, obviously shapeshift yeah. user seems like an, you know, an obvious choice, but what about for some of the other, um, you know, yeah. users? Uh, we largely just did it on feels like what are those DeFi projects out there which have been inspirational to us? So as we learned about decentralized technology and it went from kind of theoretical DAO communities, which sounded cool on paper, but, you know, that'll never work in the real world to, oh, wow, not only can it work, but a lot of people are doing this and some of the biggest DeFi protocols in the world are built on them. A lot of pioneers were in these projects and we wanted to just appreciate them. So, you know, Thorchain, Uniswap, um, Balancer, Gitcoin, uh, probably about 12 different DeFi protocols and, and projects, um, BadgerDAO. So these are all these are all inspirational projects to us. And we decided to include them in the airdrop because that's part of, that's kind of part of the ethos of, of DeFi, right? Is these like composable interactive communities that all help each other build a decentralized financial system. Yeah. And in a way, it's like those are successful decentralized communities. And so you're kind of just making sure that these tokens go to people who have a higher chance of actually using them rather than leaving them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah and I, I won't pretend part of it isn't marketing, right? Like I want thousands of users of those communities to see Shapeshift and to get interested in Shapeshift and to learn about what we're doing. And those projects are some of the more successful ones. So there's obviously brilliant creative people involved in that. And if we can get exposure of those people to what we're doing, hopefully some of them will help integrate those projects into Shapeshift. And hopefully many of them will become users of Shapeshift if they weren't already. So there are some murmurs that Uni, the token of Uniswap, could potentially be a security. And it also was a token airdropped by a centralized company do you have similar concerns for the Fox token? No, Fox token is definitely not a security. And I think the entire world is waiting for the SEC to tell everyone what's a security and what's not. Right. No one knows. No one knows. The lawyers don't know. The SEC doesn't know. If you ask anyone at the SEC, take the top hundred coins on coin market cap and tell me which of those are security and which are not. They can't do it. They can't do it. And that's the SEC. So they always talk about regulatory clarity. There is none. Nobody knows where the line is getting drawn. Nobody knows which tokens are securities. All you can do is kind of try to read the tea leaves and try to be as far from a security as possible. So that's what we've done. We've never sold the Fox token. There's no promise of return with the Fox token. Um, it is. It does not satisfy the Howey test. So we're not worried about the Fox token, but I know a lot of projects that are trying to build protocols and tokens, and they have to spend hundreds of thousands of dollars on lawyers that can only give them gray answers. And that's a problem. So did you consult with the SEC about the Fox token before airdropping it? Well, you can't consult with the SEC. Let's put it that way. Um, <laughs> you, you can consult with lawyers. And if you ask the SEC, um, the best that they can do is put you through sort of an administrative ruling process. That process will take many months 
And most projects that apply for that never get an answer. So no administrative ruling is given. The SEC has only given a couple of these rulings, and they were on projects that were um, like so clearly on one side or another that, that it was not helpful. So, so the, there is essentially a bell curve of these tokens where some are very obviously securities, some are very obviously not, right? Bitcoin being like the best example of the not. And then all, all these things in the middle and all those things in the middle, the SEC will not give definitive answers on, even if you go through an administrative ruling process and no lawyer in the world will tell you which list, which tokens fall on. And if you got a list from two different law firms, you can sure as hell bet that they would be different. They would include different ones in each, each bucket. So yeah, it's a, it's a total mess. Thank goodness people are continuing to innovate anyway. And they're not waiting for all these regulators that have no idea, like, about this new technology. Um, it's been sad to see, especially in America, where innovation is supposed to be like the default assumption and where entrepreneurs are able to build new things. And you essentially get this amazing, like new transparency in finance and immutability in finance, the coolest financial technology ever invented. And the regulators at best are just kind of hemming and hawing and, and providing zero useful information. So what would you like to see happen? There are a number of proposals out there for how to resolve this from Hester Peirce's safe harbor proposal to some different bills in Congress. What's your kind of preferred way for how the SEC handles this? Yeah, um, I think the SEC can have a very important role and be a very valuable organization. The degree to which they go after fraud is the scope of that, right? That's what they should focus on. Go find people that are lying, stealing, defrauding people. Go go find those people, bring them to justice. Like I would applaud that. But classifying things as securities or not, when it's just voluntary exchange between consenting adults, I think adds zero value. Um, another thing I think the SEC could do that would be very reasonable is to just issue warnings or caution right? Or like, hey, this token we're worried about for this reason. Or, hey, here's some things to be mindful of if you're going to buy tokens. Um, communicate, right? But don't coerce. Don't get in the middle of two adults with a voluntary economic exchange transaction. Like, that is antithetical to, to America. It's antithetical to markets. And I think is only counterproductive and harmful. So, but at the moment, you don't have a preference for any of the proposals for how to create more clarity? I don't really love any of those proposals. Um, so if, if I was king of the SEC, I would just go after fraud. I, I would feel good about that. That should be the proposal. Find the bad actors. It should come down to that, right? Was, was harm committed? Did someone do something wrong? Go after those people and, and stop worrying about whether something is a security or not, as long as people are being honest about what they've built and how it works. But so, I'm definitely in the minority of that <laughs> viewpoint. So <laughs> I don't expect the SEC to agree with it. Yeah, well, considering that it's the Securities Exchange Commission uh, and they're all about securities, I don't think they're suddenly yeah. going to be like, we're not going to regulate securities. I know, I know. It's a, it's a pipe dream. Um, all right, well, let's talk about something that might be more fun for you, uh, Shapeshift Integrated ThorChain. 
which is a yes. new chain that enables people to swap tokens from different blockchains without using wrapped versions of those tokens. Um, why did you like Thorchain so much? It was kind of a, a like a little bit of a dark horse, I think, when you... Mm-hmm. I mean, I, there was like a lot of buzz about it, but you know, it, it didn't launch until recently. So why did yeah. you decide to adopt it so quickly? Yeah. So I learned about it in August of last year. So I guess almost a year ago. Um, I've been a fan of Uniswap for 18 months. When I saw Uniswap and used it for the first time, I was just like awestruck because it had captured, it had recaptured some of the magic of the original Shapeshift. It had made this simple interface, no intermediary, no KYC, protected users by design of the, of the protocol. And it worked great. And it, ha- it had become massive, right? It became far larger than Shapeshift ever was. And there were days on which uh, it actually was doing more trade volume than, than Coinbase as a decentralized immutable project. So I was like, that's awesome. I loved it. But one big asterisk, one big caveat is that it's only Ethereum and ERC-20 assets. And as a Bitcoiner, as someone who believes in a multi-chain future, that was a big problem, right? So cool, Uniswap, you, you made this great thing, but how the hell do I buy Bitcoin with it? That's like the most important asset of all. Um, how do I trade Bitcoin and Tether together? You know, one ERC to one to one Bitcoin asset. And they couldn't do that. Um, they have wrapped Bitcoin, but any Bitcoiner knows that a wrapped Bitcoin is not a Bitcoin. So I was a little dismayed and I didn't know, like, how do we bring that model to multiple chains? And I had no idea how to answer that question. Thorchain answered that question. Thorchain has been under construction for two and a half years or so. And they took this um, automated market maker, you know, liquidity pool model of Uniswap, but it works across chains. So you can trade from native unwrapped Bitcoin to native unwrapped ETH. You can trade from Litecoin to Bitcoin, Bitcoin to Bitcoin Cash. Any of the major chains can integrate into Thorchain. That is a huge development for the industry. And I do not think most people have actually recognized that that exists or, or how cool that is. The ability to actually have a decentralized exchange that is chain agnostic is something that has never existed in, in crypto before. And it works at scale in large amounts with high liquidity. Um, caveat again here, Thorchain is very new early software and they've had a few pretty atrocious bugs recently. Like right now the chain is offline. So it's not a panacea <laughs> and it's not ready for prime time, but it works. It's worked with real money. It's out in the wild and it's getting better and better each week. So yeah, I, I love that project and we integrated it into Thorchain or into uh, Shapeshift. And what has been the uptake? Like have people kind of recognized kind of what a breakthrough it is and really, you know, um, been drawn to use it? Or do you find that they're still kind of in their little camps, like the Ether people and then the Bitcoin people? And so there isn't a lot of interest in these cross-chain um, swaps. What has been interesting is you can definitely see like who the maximalists are on both sides. So like the Bitcoin maximalists aren't into Thorchain because it supports other coins. The Ethereum maximalists aren't into it because it's not like an Ethereum based DEX like Uniswap. But for everyone who actually cares about decentralized finance in a broad sense, the ability to move between different chains, uh, move value between different chains is obviously important. It's a critical piece of infrastructure for this ecosystem. So the growth of Thorchain has been pretty significant considering that they have self-imposed liquidity caps. They're keeping the pools small and raising them uh, uh, marginally over time because it's such a new software and it's smart that they're doing that. 
as those caps get continually raised, the liquidity will grow to the point where the pricing becomes extremely competitive. And um, I would not be surprised if the largest Tether Bitcoin market in the world ends up on ThirdChain. Like that's the largest crypto market, Tether Bitcoin. Um, 99.99% of Tether Bitcoin trading today happens at centralized exchanges. This is completely out of alignment with the ethos of Bitcoin as a decentralized immutable project. So thank goodness there is finally a way to convert Bitcoin to Tether without any intermediary. Everyone in the ecosystem should be celebrating that and helping to contribute to ThorChain and making it better. Yeah, that that idea is very cool. And especially if a lot of that trading moves from centralized exchanges, um, it'll be interesting to see what happens to that landscape. Um, so, yeah. oh, keep going. Did you want to say? Yeah, I, I'll, I'll add that I don't think centralized exchanges go away. Like they, they have certain advantages that decentralized exchanges don't today. But I'd like to at least go from a situation where 99.99% of Bitcoin tether trading being centralized falls, you know, to 60 or 50 or 40%. I think that'd be a much healthier market. And, and what do you think are the benefits of centralized exchanges? Uh, generally the latency. Right. So decentralized exchanges usually have latency issues. So they're not good for like small trades. You would not want to use Thorchain with a $10 swap of Bitcoin to Ethereum because the transaction fees would just clobber you. But it will absolutely be the best way to convert $1 million of Bitcoin into Ethereum. And those liquidity pools will get massively deep. Something people don't realize is that in Thorchain, you can earn yield on all the assets of the liquidity pools. So you'll be able to earn yield on Bitcoin by depositing Bitcoin into the ThorChain liquidity pool. So all these people that are excited about earning, you know, like 1% with BlockFi uh, with a custodian, right? And only from certain jurisdictions and only under KYC and financial surveillance, they'll be able to earn 5, 10, 20% yield with no intermediary on ThorChain. That's, that's huge. So yeah, you can tell I'm excited about it. I think it's a, a big deal. Yeah. You're, I mean, you're not the only one. A lot of people have been telling me and I, because I've been so focused on the book, I have not uh, done a deep dive into it yet, but I definitely will. Um, so a few times in this conversation, a reference to maximalism has come up and obviously you made waves at Bitcoin Miami <laughs> where you, uh, you know, kind of poke the bears a little bit at the conference. Um, what yeah. spurred you to make those remarks against maximalism? Yeah, so I've been outspoken against maximalism for years. And this has, of course, made me very hated by the maximalists. Um, at that conference, so this was a Bitcoin-focused conference. And I, I get that. I respect that. I can appreciate a conference that tries to like get all the noise of other tokens and other projects out of there and just talk about Bitcoin. I'm all for that. The, right before I went up as a moderator of a panel, the panel before me, their topic was... Um, like it was something like why toxic maximalism is good for Bitcoin. So not just not just maximalism, not just like Bitcoin is is the only one we should focus on, but like toxic maximalism. Like how <laughs> how big of assholes can we be to people who don't think like us about Bitcoin? And so these people were on stage talking about the virtues of toxic maximalism. Um, I don't know who these people were. I don't know when they got into Bitcoin. But absolutely, that is not the community that I come from in Bitcoin. The community I come from in Bitcoin is one of openness and one of, of decentralization, of innovation, of caring passionately about monetary economics and believing that Bitcoin is 
a better money system for the world. And that if there is an enemy, it is central banks and banking and fiat currency, not the Dogecoin community, not the Ethereum community, right? And yet there are these toxic maximalists that, that get up there and just trash these people. Um, and, and they've spun themselves up into thinking that like trashing these people is a virtue and is helping Bitcoin and is good. I think it's like a, frankly, I think it's just kind of disgusting. And I was embarrassed. It was the first Bitcoin conference I've ever been to where I was embarrassed about many of the people who were there. And I want to be careful not to cast the entire audience or the entire group of Bitcoiners there as these kind of maximalists. I think they are a small niche, but they're very loud. They're very obnoxious. And um, the, the thing that triggered me when I was backstage, one of the guys that was up talking about this was, he said, if you're opposed to toxic maximalism, you're opposed to Bitcoin and you're opposed to freedom. I believe that was the exact quote. And this to me sounded like such absurd propaganda. And I almost laughed and realized that he wasn't joking. He actually believed that. Like if you're not a jerk to other communities, you're against freedom. So when I got up on stage, I addressed that comment and I just said, you know, that was, that was bullshit. And that was it. That was my only comment. A bunch of people in the audience start booing at me. A bunch of people in the audience start cheering. And it became, it went a little bit viral on, on crypto Twitter for a bit. Um, I don't want to be the center of maximalism. I just want people to realize that the best attributes of Bitcoin are openness and decentralization. And those attributes are best served by a thriving and diverse ecosystem of different digital assets. So it's fascinating. You've been in the ecosystem for so long and you've been to a gazillion crypto conferences or Bitcoin conferences. Why do you think this was the first one where you felt that strain of toxic mac maximalism that was kind of being so, uh, you know, pushed really hard? Well, probably we see this, we see this from online communities generally, where due to various social media algorithms and due to self-selection of messaging, people end up in bubbles of others who think like them, right? We see this in politics. We see this on Twitter for sure. And I, I think that the there is a bubble of Bitcoin maximalists, toxic maximalists, whatever they want to call themselves, who have just continued to reinforce their own messaging. And, you know, if you if you're trying to get into Bitcoin and you can say something that gets you, you know, 300 likes because you slandered someone in another community, you're going to feel good about that. Right. And the people that like that kind of messaging are going to be attracted to you. Um, I think we've gotten to a point where that phenomenon has just gotten very powerful. And the degree to which these people um, truly, I think they, they sincerely believe that what they're doing is right. I think they sincerely believe that it's good that they are jerks to other people and that that is somehow helpful for Bitcoin. Um, it's just turned into a subculture within the Bitcoin community. And I've seen the same exact attributes starting to develop in the Ethereum community. There are Ethereum maximalists and indeed some who I would consider pretty, pretty toxic. Uh, it's a smaller portion, but I worry that it's just a matter of time until any of these communities, you know, you, you build up this like this niche minority who is more about the hatred of the other than they are about the virtuous attributes of the, of the chain and as, asset that they fell in love with. So what do you think can be done to kind of um, turn down 
those strains and foster one that's, oh, yeah, you don't have I don't any, know. I don't have any answers. I will keep talking about it, you know, but like, um, I don't know how to solve that, but I, I think it's the biggest problem within crypto. It's, it's the biggest thing that prevents further progress. You know, these communities should be collaborating with each other. Bitcoin is best when Ethereum exists and vice versa. It is no coincidence that the two things have grown up and hit their all-time highs together. They are mutually beneficial. They have different attributes. And I wish that the communities would see each other as allies in the actual fight, which is decentralized open finance versus centralized closed fiat banking establishment. That's the real struggle here. And maybe some of the maximalists are too scared of that struggle. Maybe some of the maximalists are too afraid to actually push the boundary against the government or against a regulator. They're too timid to actually fight. So they just take cheap shots at each other within the crypto community. And out of curiosity, after you made those comments at Bitcoin Miami, did you hear more from maximalists who were mad at you? Or did you hear more from people who agreed with you and just said, you know, I agree with you, but I don't want to make noise about it because I don't want the maximalists to attack me? There, there was some of both. Um, when I left the stage after my panel, there were a, a few people that like just yelled out and heckled me like, you know, shit coiner, you know, like just, <laughs> and I'd never experienced that in person, right? That happens on Twitter all the time. But there are these people who I know haven't been in Bitcoin for more than a couple of years, right? Where were they 10 years ago? What were they doing? You know, they, they obviously didn't understand this technology early enough. Um, now I think they're trying to make up for it by just being, jerks and so yeah it's it was a it was uncomfortable and for the rest of the day um my friends and i were sitting around you know just kind of talking about this development and how bitcoin conferences did not used to be like that and kind of wishing that 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 old that old type of conference would come back this is i find this whole thing fascinating especially since you say it's very new um Wonder what that means. All right. A couple yeah. last questions about regulation, which, um, you know, we've talked very generally about, but, uh, the regulators are making a lot of moves. Um, <laughs> I guess we'll start with one of the cases that's kind of a bit older. Um, obviously the CFTC and DOJ went after not only BitMEX, but the executives. Um, you know, there were people who felt that this was overreach. And I wondered what your opinion was of that case. Yeah, I mean, anyone who knows me probably knows my opinion there. Um, <laughs> where was the wrongdoing? Where was the harm? What did BitMEX lie about? Did they defraud someone? Did they steal someone's money? Did they actually harm anyone? Or did they just offer a service that other people voluntarily used? Because it sounds like it's the latter. It sounds like the, D the DOJ and the CFTC are upset that BitMEX didn't have the right licenses right? Or was actually allowing Americans to use that service, that kind of thing. These are non-crimes. No one is hurt in that. And you just get a tremendous waste of resource and destruction of productive business when regulators go after others like that. Um, so I'm not an expert on the case. Maybe there are things I do not know. But from my distant view of it, um, it seems like the actual crime is the regulators going after private property and destroying commercial business that they had no business destroying. And what do you think about Binance, which right now kind of is um, <laughs> at the receiving end of a lot of different regulatory actions across jurisdictions around the world? Um, you know, it's kind of historically known for 
maybe leaving certain jurisdictions to avoid regulators. What's your take on what's happening there? Yeah. So again, I don't have any inside knowledge there. Um, Binance is obviously you know, the biggest exchange. I think the biggest cryptocurrency company in the world. They've done a tremendous job of building a business, right? Like I, I respect CZ's ability to execute and to build something so big. Um, they are building so fast and in, in, in so many directions. It is not surprising to me that they've got the attention of a lot of regulators. And again, you know, if they're doing something actually wrong, if they're actually harming someone, let the regulators allege the harm. Let's hear that and take them to court for harm. Uh, I don't want to hear a bunch of like, you don't have the license to operate in our jurisdiction, right? But um, that's maybe appropriate for like Soviet Russia, but it should not be appropriate for any like Western market economy. And so with stable coins, there's also been a lot of noise being made here in the US recently, where um, the SEC chairman, Gary Gensler, was saying that some stable coins might be securities and the presidential working group on crypto already started um, you know, looking closely at, at stable coins. What's your take on how stable coins should be regulated here in the US? Well, first of all, they already are regulated, right? Like everything that is involved in finance is, is regulated. Anyone who's issuing stable coins and backing it with fiat is already under a tremendous amount of financial regulation. So we need to remove this idea that stable coins are like aren't regulated. Same with crypto. People say crypto is not regulated. It absolutely is. There are so many regulations that apply to this stuff. It's absurd. Um, what should be the regulatory situation with stable coins? Again, none, unless people are committing fraud. They're, people have built a new financial asset and other people are finding it valuable. That should be the end of the story, right? That, that should be it. Um, so. I think what will happen is that governments will apply further regulations because that's generally what they do. They always ratchet regulations on top of more. They never deregulate, contrary to popular opinion. And as that happens, the UX, the user experience of using those stable coins will get worse. You'll have to jump through more hoops to use them. There will be higher capital requirements, which will mean that fees have to get added at various places. Um, for a user, it'll end up a worse experience, and you'll find that they will start moving to the decentralized alternatives. The greatest beneficiary of stablecoin regulations will be DAI, right? DAI, the, mm. the decentralized stablecoin on Ethereum. And there are a dozen other projects that are decentralized stablecoins like DAI that are waiting in the wings to take this market. The more the governments and regulators clamp down on voluntary economic exchange. Now that there is an ability for people to move to decentralized open source technology with no intermediary, the more they will have a reason to do so. So, you know, I'm very glad that that alternative exists. And I think those alternatives will get increasingly used to the, to the degree that the UX of the centralized stable coins gets worse. Yeah. I, I agree with you that the more, um, we're going to see this type of regulation. I feel the more people will move into DeFi. Um, all right. So yeah, actually one, one more comment on this. The, the stable coin thing is getting wrapped up in this whole CBDC discussion. Right. And yeah. I think everyone realizes that like the United States and China are going to be in this battle for like the, the digital currency of the future. Both those countries believe it'll be a digital fiat currency. Obviously Bitcoiners have a different view on that. Um, but the best thing the U.S. could do from a global uh, political like strategy perspective would be to allow 
these US-based stablecoins that are already massive to continue to flourish. That is the best chance that the US maintains dominance from a digital fiat perspective. And if they just like kill that in, in, the, in the cradle, um, it would be so foolish, but they, they may well do it. Yeah, well, actually, um, I don't know if you are aware, the former CFTC chairman, Chris Giancarlo, I believe is in favor of, um, you know, these kind of private stable, or wait, or is it Brian Brooks? I'm just blinking for a second, but I would guess it's both of them. Yeah, they're they're in favor of yeah a number of private stable coins, and oh, one other thing I wanted to ask you about was um you know right now the stable coins are being all transparent and um you know <laughs> revealing what's backing their stable coins and obviously so at the moment Tether kind of has the least amount of direct cash reserves, and then Circle has a little bit more at like sixty some percent, and then Paxos came out and said we have ninety six percent. So I was just mm -hmm. curious if you have any opinion on on the structure yeah. of these stablecoins. I love that example because it is a demonstration of how markets regulate themselves. None of those three companies are doing that because they were told to do it by a government regulator. They're doing it because they're all in competition with each other and the market demands transparency. If you have a stablecoin and you can demonstrate that you are more sound, you have a huge advantage over others. So you get a far healthier financial system from that competition without a single regulation being written. My guess is that when the regulations get written, the further regulations on top of these things, you're going to end up with worse products that act in, in an antithetical way toward what the market wants. And I wish that the government would just allow this incredible innovation to flourish because that is where all human ingenuity and wealth comes from, is this market competition. It is what made America great. And I, it's what made crypto great. It's why crypto has thrived and grown and innovated in so many different directions. It's because right now it is somewhat free. Um, and I, I hope it can continue to maintain that. And at least at the protocol level, it always will be. Yeah. I think the one clarification I would make is that at least in the case of Tether, I believe the new transparency is because of the settlement with the New York Attorney General. So, um, <laughs> okay. so their hand was a little bit forced there. Um, all right. So ask I, her I would guess if USDC is doing it, they would have to do it to be competitive. But I, okay. I hear your point. Yeah. Yeah. Um, all right. So I know you're not the decider for Shapeshift going forward, but I did want to ask, um, how do you think Shapeshift could or should compete with Uniswap because it's so dominant in the DEX space? Yeah, we are not trying to compete with Uniswap. We are not a DEX. We have actually integrated Uniswap into Shapeshift along with a dozen other DEXs. Mm -hmm. So when someone's doing a trade on Shapeshift, it is being routed to any of those dozen DEXs that have the best price at that moment. So we are huge fans of Uniswap. We hope they get massive. Their liquidity pools being bigger is better for us. Um, their, their strength is our strength. So, so, shape, yeah. so Shapeshift going forward will be more like a DEX aggregator? Technically, we're not even an aggregator because we hook up aggregators into Shapeshift, but that's a little bit better way to think about it. Yeah, the more we, we integrate decentralized protocols into Shapeshift. So we don't have to compete on any vertical with any of those. All right. Well, we will see how this whole process unfolds. It's been yeah. super interesting discussing it with you. And yeah, I really appreciate that you came on Unchained. Yeah. Happy to be here. Thanks, Laura. Good conversation. Oh, actually. And yeah. last question, where can people learn more about you and Shapeshift? Yeah. Shapeshift.com. Everyone should check to see if they're eligible for the airdrop because a lot of your listeners will be. I'm at Eric Voorhees on Twitter. Those are probably the best two places. Perfect. All right. Well, thanks so much for coming on Unchained. Cheers.
Thanks so much for joining us today. To learn more about Eric and Shapeshift, check out the show notes for this episode. Unchained is produced by me, Laura Shin, with help from Anthony Yoon, Daniel Ness, and Mark Murdoch. Thanks for listening.